Well, I invite you to open your Bibles with me this morning to 2 Peter chapter 2, and we'll be looking at verses 4 through 10, and this will be the, the first of two looks at this particular paragraph uh, in uh, 2 Peter chapter 2. Actually, when we start in verse 4, this is one of those Pauline sentences. It's long. It's one sentence that starts in verse 4 and goes all the way down through verse 10. So it is a long sentence, but uh, it's glorious and it's just packed with uh, information that Peter longs to entrust to us so that we can understand it and order our lives accordingly. So I'll begin reading uh, in verse 4, and the context is verses 1 through 3, Peter has told these churches that he's writing to that there's going to come false teachers into the church, and they will be introducing secretly destructive heresies, they will deny the master who bought them. And they'll bring swift destruction upon themselves, and many, many people will follow after their sensuality. So he's very concerned about this, because it's not only happening in his day and age, it's happening in our day and age, and in every day and age, where this kind of threat against the church rising up from within the church is something that we need to be on guard against. And in this passage, Peter is going to encourage the churches that God will deal with them, these false teachers. He's done it in the past, and he'll continue to do it in the future until the final day of judgment comes. So starting in verse 4, Peter writes, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. And if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter, And if he rescued righteous lot oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, for by what he saw and heard that righteous man while living among them felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment and especially those who indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires and despise authority. So this has been a very long conditional sentence. So you have if, if, if implied throughout the major major part of the passage, and then in verse 9 comes the, the, the result. Therefore, if this, then that. So it's a very long conditional sentence. But again, what Peter has in mind now is he's trying to give assurance to these churches that God is going to deal with the false teachers, those that are currently in the church and those who will arise in the future. 
And ultimately, there is a final day of judgment when God will justly deal with them and their destructive heresies and their teachings that are contrary to the Word of God. So in verses 4 through 10, Peter will give three examples of God's past judgments. And this is to assure them that God throughout the Old, the Old Testament has dealt with rebellion and sin. He has brought judgment upon them. And he will continue to do it until the final day of judgment when he'll do it for the last time. So he's going to give us three examples of God's judgment in the Old Testament to assure these churches that as they are troubled and disturbed by the false teachers and the destructive heresies that God's going to deal with it. He's dealt with it in the past. He's going to deal with it in the future. And they can have that confidence that God is sovereign and in control. In addition, mixed in with those three examples of divine judgment are two examples of divine deliverance. They're glorious in and of themselves, but we'll look at that another time. We're going to focus mainly on the three examples of divine judgment this morning. Now to set the stage for this, we need to back up to verse 3 because we need to remind ourselves again of the context. Peter writes in verse 3, speaking of these false teachers, that in their greed they will exploit you with false words. And then he says, their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. And now he's going to go give three Old Testament examples of judgment. But he starts out in verse 3 by telling these believers that, look, their judgment from long ago is not idle. God will not delay or slack off when it comes time to judge these false teachers. Their judgment has been determined from long ago, and it's not idle. It's the predetermined plan of God. Everything is being prepared. Everything is being arranged. Their judgment will take place. God is not being sidetracked. The day has been determined. The clock is ticking. The judgment day will not be called off or postponed. God is not idle. He has set a future day of judgment. They will be judged on that day if they do not repent. And then he adds to that that their destruction is not asleep. In other words, God will not doze off. He'll not let the time pass by him without recognizing that it has come. He is fully awake. He's fully alert. He is watching. He's totally focused. His eyes upon the false teachers. They will not escape. Their destruction is not asleep. It's all according to God's time, time schedule and clock. So it's from here now that Peter goes over three Old Testament examples of God's judgment. Because he's trying to establish them that God, that what's going on with these false teachers, what's going on within the church, God is not unaware. He's very much aware. And he will judge them in the right time. 
And he does that by giving these three Old Testament examples of God's judgment to show them that God doesn't sleep when it's time to judge. He's very much active, and that will also be the case with these false teachers and the future ones as well. So we look at example number one. Excuse me. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment. So that's the first example that uh, Peter gives to God's activity of bringing judgment upon sinners. And he begins with angels. God did not spare the angels when they sinned. Now, angels were created holy originally. They were created righteous. Angels are incredibly magnificent creatures. They, They are spirits who are given powers and abilities that far exceed ours in some ways. These angels were created by God to worship God in His presence, to serve God. They were the very spectators when God created the earth. As Job 38 tells us, that when God created the earth, the morning stars, a reference to probably angels, sang together, and all the sons of God shouted for joy. So the angels were there when God created the earth, and they shouted for joy in, in amazement. The angels beheld the glory of God in heaven. Talk about being exalted. And yet when they sinned, God did not withhold judgment from them. So this is a very sobering first example that Peter gives. God did not spare them when these angels sinned against God. And neither will He spare these false teachers when they sin against God as well who are bent on leading God's people astray, God will not spare them. He didn't spare the the angels. Now, the question is, and you can read the commentaries. Excuse me. Sorry for your ears. But uh, thank you very much. Appreciate it. So the question is, what? Sin is Peter thinking about when he's talking about these angels sinning. And basically, there's two views. Number one, Peter is thinking of the original fall of Satan and the demons out of heaven. This is R.C. Sproul's view. They were cast out of heaven into the domain of darkness and punishment, and they are there now. And the language in verse 4 could accommodate that. The word for hell we'll look at in just a moment, but it's a very unusual word. It's the only time it occurs in the New Testament. It's not the normal word for hell that we find in Scripture. But God committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment because now the, the angels who sinned and were cast out of heaven are now in a realm of darkness. 
Their kingdom is a kingdom of darkness. You find that description throughout Scripture. And they're also reserved for the judgment to come. So that's one view that Peter is thinking of the original fall of Satan and the angels who rebelled against God, and now those they become demons, in effect. The other interpretation is that Peter is thinking of the sons of God in Genesis 6, who are interpreted as fallen angels in this particular view. They are the demons who came down, and they cohabited with women, and they produced an especially depraved offspring or giants. And this is a view that many, many commentators hold. Uh, The problem is that, in my view with that, is that demons are spirit beings. And apparently they can uh, materialize in, in some forms or fashions. But uh, they don't have a sexual identity. They are spirit beings without necessarily assigned a sex, like many people think they are today. But in Matthew 22, verse 30, it says, In the resurrection, the saints, when they're resurrected, will neither marry nor be given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. So that angels don't, Mary, angels don't have families, angels don't procreate. They don't have the ability to do that. The only way I think this particular view can be established is if these demons came down and possessed the bodies of men. Because these angels cannot create a human speed to impregnate, a a human seed to impregnate a woman. They can't create that. Only God can create. Uh, So if they came down and possessed the bodies of men, then they could produce children that they would be involved in corrupting them. And that's about the only way this view, I think, would make sense in, in my mind. Also, when you look at their judgment here, they are cast into hell, Peter says. And here Peter uses a word for hell that is Tartarus. It's the only time you find it in the New Testament. It comes right out of the Greek culture. Uh, You find it in a lot of the uh, classical Greek writings. And for them, it meant a lower place, lower than Hades, where divine punishment was meted out. And so it was a very common word back then. It's not the normal word for hell as we think of hell. So, again, exactly what Peter means by that uh, is up for somewhat debate. But certainly these angels were judged by God. They were committed to pits or chains of darkness. Some of your Bibles may have chains of darkness here. And that is consistent with their moral nature. Because now they're in the realm, their sin has just has created this realm of darkness that they live in, moral and spiritual darkness. That's the realm of demons today. That's the realm of of Satan today. His kingdom is a kingdom of darkness. And notice at the end of verse 4, they are reserved for judgment. Revelation says that they will be cast on the final day of judgment into the lake of fire forever. 
They will be tormented day and night forever and ever, Revelation 20.10. So whichever view you take, the main point, Peter is using them as an illustration that God judged sinners. He judged even the angels when they sinned. The second example that Peter gives is of the days of Noah in verse 5. And he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. So now Peter says, look again, when people sin, God judged them. You can trust the timing and the severity and the measuring out of God's judgment. He's done it consistently in the scriptures. And the second example are in the days, again, the days of Noah. If you go back to Genesis chapter 6, we get a description of their sin. It says, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. I mean, this is depravity at a very advanced degree. Because of the sin of Adam, all human beings are cursed with a sin nature, and that sin nature has corrupted us in many terrible ways. And so in the days of Noah, wickedness was great on the earth. Every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That's the nature of our depravity. The mind is affected. The decisions of the heart are affected. And it's only evil continually. You drop down to verse 11 of Genesis 6. It says, Now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God. The earth was filled with violence. God looked on the earth, and behold, it was all corrupt. All flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. Again, a very depraved generation. And so God decided that he would just destroy them all except for Noah and his family. So Peter says, here's example number two. Don't ever doubt that God has the right and the authority and the will to act in judging sinners. This is the second example. And then the third example is found in verse 6. And he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter. So now Peter turns to Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, Peter doesn't mention the sin of homosexuality that was, that was there. He doesn't have to. They all knew their Bibles. They all knew kind of what the issues were. Uh, but notice in this verse that God turned them to ashes, Sodom and Gomorrah. And this is what we have in Genesis 19, verse 24, when it says that the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. So basically, he turned them to ashes. Uh, they were burnt down as these cities of wickedness. Their bodies were turned to ashes. Their souls, again, though not mentioned in this verse, certainly would be assigned to hell, a place of punishment. If you drop down to verse 9, this is implied. When Peter is kind of wrapping up his thoughts here, he says, And the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. 
So when an unbeliever, an unrepentant person dies, their body goes into the grave, comes back to, to dust and ashes, their soul goes to hell. This would be the intermediate state. And they are kept under punishment for the day of judgment, the final day of judgment to come. And that's what Peter's referencing here in verse 9. And then he says in verse 10, and especially those who indulge the flesh and its corrupt desires. And I think he's probably talking about the homosexuality of Sodom and Gomorrah. That the Lord keeps all unbelievers under when they die under punishment until the day of judgment. And that includes anyone who dies without faith in Jesus Christ. But in the context, I think Peter is, is focusing on Sodom and Gomorrah. It would include the flood. The angels are, are in their own Tartarus, their own place of punishment. But all the people in the flood generation in Sodom and Gomorrah are all kept under punishment until the day of judgment. This is the idea that, that is consistent with our Lord's teaching in Luke chapter 16 when He told the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. The rich man dies, he goes to Hades, and he's in torment. And he talks to Abraham and asks him to tell Lazarus, who's reclining in the bosom of Abraham, have, have Lazarus go and get some water and drop a drop on my tongue because my tongue is is basically on fire. He's in torment there. And that's a reference to the intermediate state that the Lord clearly taught and implied in that story. So this is the very sobering truth of what Peter is referencing in our passage as well. And if you go back up to verse 6, notice what Peter draws from Sodom and Gomorrah that he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives hereafter. So what Peter is saying is that God made Sodom and Gomorrah an example for anyone who would want to imitate their lifestyle going forward. So he's speaking to those who are living homosexual lifestyles. And he says Sodom and Gomorrah is an example to anyone else who wants to imitate that lifestyle. Beware the judgment of God. Now that's really true for any sinner and all kinds of sinners. But Peter here is drawing emphasis on the sin of homosexuality that uh, God judged in the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. This reference here in verse 6, that He has made them an example, is a reference in Greek that refers to it being an abiding and ongoing warning to future generations of the danger of promoting the homosexual lifestyle. Our own generation has succumbed to this, sadly. We have uh, seen the spread of the LGBTQ plus community in the last few decades. Our own society and our own culture is basically thumbing our nose at this warning that Peter gives to us here in verse 6. 
It's the very essence of the folly to think that we can promote it and escape the judgment of God. It will not happen. God will bring His judgment and His timing and His way on all sinners, but certainly these as well. It's interesting, when you think about the sin, the nature of the homosexuality in Sodom and Gomorrah, the Bible gives us some pretty strong language. In Genesis chapter 19, it says that before they lay down, this would be Lot and his family and the two angels that have come there to warn them that God is about to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah and they need to leave. It says, Before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, surrounded the house, both young and old. All the people from every quarter. And they called to Lot and they said to him, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so that we may have relations with them. So what they were wanting to do is they were kind of barging the doors because they wanted to commit homosexual rape. They wanted to come in to these two men who were angels and rape them. So it's a very violent form of homosexuality that was existing there within Sodom and Gomorrah. The, uh, the, the degree of violence is certainly not common today, except you hear about it in the prison system where these kinds of things will take place. Not, not yet in our culture, and yet there are more subtle forms of opposition and violence that are occurring even within our own culture in this area. Uh, the LGBTQ community is very effective in silencing opposition to their lifestyle. Woe to the one who calls it a sin. You will reap all kinds of wrath from their community. They will uh, work in the business realm to force people out of their jobs if they do not uh, support and approve the LGBTQ lifestyle. People have lost their jobs from that. If you oppose their lifestyle, then you'll be branded as a bigot. There's a growing form of of economic and social violence, if you will, against people who refuse to accommodate the lifestyle. For example, we've all familiar uh, the last few years of, of uh, wedding cake makers or photographers who out of their own conviction would not serve a homosexual wedding and yet they get sued. That's a form of violence, an economic and social violence that can bankrupt or greatly uh, affect people's lives. So it's not as bad as what it is in Sodom and Gomorrah, but the warning is beware. Beware. Yeah, an aggravated form in Sodom and Gomorrah, but God judged them. Beware of any culture that's moving in that direction. 
And that's the abiding warning I think that our culture needs to hear today. Now, on the one hand, the sin of homosexuality is like any other sin. I mean, any other sin will condemn us to God's judgment. Uh, Paul mentions homosexuality and lists with many other sins. So it's just one of many different kinds of sins. And we have to certainly keep that in mind. Uh, we need to evangelize the, the homosexual, the LGBTQ community. We need to show compassion to them. We need to reach out to them for the gospel because in many ways they're just sinners like we're all sinners okay we've all been saved out of some cesspool of sin and there's just a different kind of cesspool than what we've all been saved out of so on the one hand homosexuality is just a, a sin like like other kinds of sins and I, and I praise God, and I know some who are very much involved in the ministry of reaching out with the gospel to those in the homosexual community. That's not my calling, but I praise God for those that are bringing the gospel to them uh, because we need to be doing that. On the other hand, the sin of homosexuality is marked out as an unusually revolting sin. You can't deny that either. In Leviticus 18, God was very clear. If a man lies with another man, it's an abomination in the sight of God. Not all sins are called an abomination in the, in the eyes of God, but that sin is. The outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah in, in the eyes of God was great, and their sin was exceedingly grave. Exodus, I'm sorry, Genesis 18, verse 20. And when Paul talks about this sin, uh, he does not deal with it kindly in Romans chapter 1 we read again and this is the spirit of God communicating to us through scripture he says therefore God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them for they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worship this and serve the creator excuse me, the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And notice this expression, God gave them over. This is, a, this is a, a judicial judgment. This is God saying, you want your sin? I'm going to withdraw my common grace from you and you can have your sin. When God gave them over, it is a divine act of judgment where God withdraws from them so their depraved, sinful heart just runs rampant down that road as fast as it can go. And that expression, God gave them over, occurs three times in this passage. The next verse, for, for this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. For their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another, men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. And that is a result of God giving them over. A lot of people say, well, God's going to judge America because of the the homosexuality within us huh well yeah but the homosexual uh, presence in our culture is a sign of god's judgment already 
The very fact that it's multiplying and spreading in America and other nations around the world is already a sign of God giving them over. It's a sign of judicial judgment upon their sin. You want your sin? I'm going to withdraw some of the breaks. I'm going to withdraw some of the hindrances and just let you have it. So it's an indication of God's judgment on America and other nations already. And there's also one to come. And then for the third time that Paul records this phrase, God gave them over, verse 28, and just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to depraved mind to do the things which are not proper. It's, it's God giving them over, pulling away the common grace in their mind and their thinking and their moral values so that now they just pursue it. So what Peter is telling us is that God made Sodom and Gomorrah an example that's to be an abiding example for every nation and every culture. Beware of those who accommodate and approve and promote homosexuality. Because God's judgment is not idle. Now obviously, we Peter's main focus is on the false teachers that are teaching today. Well, in his day and, and going forward, which will include those teachers today as well. And this raises a more prevalent concern that is going on in the Church of America, at least that I'm aware of, of where the door is being opened for this influence in the church today. And this is why I want to briefly address this because Peter says that Sodom and Gomorrah is an example, and it's an abiding example, and it's an example that America in the 21st century needs to be sensitive to. So what we have in, in our country is a growing movement of gay Christianity, where people say they can be both gay and Christian. Now, there's a side A part to that and a side B. The side A part, which you can find like in the Gay Christian Network. By the way, a gay Christian is an oxymoron, which means it's a contradiction in terms. But the side A says, okay, you can be a homosexual, you can have homosexual desires, and you can practice gay marriage and homosexual sexual activities, and that's fine. We approve of it. You can be in our church. Our church promotes that. That's side A, gay Christianity. And there are churches like that. There's some here in Oklahoma City. The side B, I think, is, I mean, most of us would say, yeah, okay, that's, that's wrong. Side B is more subtle. The side B type of gay Christianity, as I've tried to wrap my brain around this, believes that homosexual sex is wrong but you can still have homosexual desires and affections for the same sex type. And, and the way they put it is that we are homosexuals by nature. We're Christians, but we're homosexual by nature. And our attractions and our desires are for those of the same sex. 
So they say there's really nothing wrong with that. That's to be celebrated and approved because after all, we're supposed to love our neighbor and love one another. But it's coming from their orientation. They think of themselves as homosexuals. They think of themselves as being people who are created by God with same-sex like attractions and desires and if they can pursue those that's okay as long as they don't engage in the physical uh, sex part of it and that's coming into the church under side b gay christianity and if you read the articles on there it's, it's interesting the the going back and how they try to justify uh, this type of uh, of attitude i think the problems with side b is that number one, you can't <clears throat> say that their desires are good and holy if it comes out of an orientation that I'm, I'm gay and I'm, I'm attracted to same-sex people. In other words, their desires are sinful just as the actions are sinful. And I think within this movement, as it seems to me, they have a difficulty saying that their desires are sinful. I'm not committing sex, so it's okay. Even though I have desires of, of companionship and close affinity and affections for someone of my same gender, that's holy and that's good. But they don't realize it's coming out of this whole orientation where they still identify as homosexual, they identify as gay, they still are a part of gay groups, they think of themselves as their identity is I'm a homosexual person. I'm also a Christian. I'm a gay Christian. And again, I think the, the slippery slope here is that they don't recognize that desires can be sinful as well as actions. That's why we have the 10th commandment. Thou shalt not covet. We have another command. Thou shalt not steal. That's the action. You, you may, you may, covet your neighbor's car but you think well as long as i don't go steal it out of his garage i'm okay no the desire for it is a sin too and when you put it in someone who who identifies themselves as gay and homosexual then you're in you're in difficult water it seems to me homosexual desires are likewise sinful because they originate in a sinful and corrupt nature and you can't whitewash it to sanctify it the way I think they seem to try to do. They want to conflate the love that we should all have for one another with their own gay orientation and understanding of loving our neighbor. It's still coming out of that identifi identification with the gay and homosexual uh, lifestyle. Uh, Rosaria Butterfield, who was once a radical feminist lesbian who was transformed by the gospel by a loving witness of a pastor. And this is a great example of how we still should reach out in love and mercy to, to these people because a Presbyterian pastor began to invite her over and he and his wife began to minister to her. And over time, she eventually came to faith in Christ. She's now married to a Presbyterian minister and has children, I think. But she said that the problem with this whole side B gay Christianity is that from her personal observation, 
Over the years, they have seen many side B gay Christians defect to side A gay Christians. In other words, they're just fooling themselves, thinking that their desires are really good because those desires will go forward without being checked, and then eventually they'll just go back to the full gay lifestyle. And she said the reason why they do that is because their theology is untenable. Andy Webb, a minister in the PCA Church, Presbyterian Church of America denomination, who's seeing his whole denomination slipping down this direction, noted, quote, that no denomination or congregation has ever been able to maintain side B gay Christianity for more than a decade without eventually sliding into side A gay Christianity. So in other words, it's a downward slippery slope. Rosaria Butterfield again said, how can you fight a sin that you don't hate? And gay Christianity does not hate their desires, which are a sin. So how can you, how can you fight a sin that you don't hate? And that's why so many slide back into the side of A. They embrace those desires as being good, as an essential part of their identity. They try to redefine their attraction as good and wholesome, when in reality, it's sinful masquerading as righteousness. And because they don't want to distinguish between normal expressions of good affection, holy affection, and inordinate expressions, then they are playing with fire. So Peter is saying, just beware culture, beware Sodom and Gomorrah are examples to you. Don't slide down that road. Another and final problem with this side B gay Christianity is that they're also adamant that they cannot change. They were born this way. God made them gay and homosexual. That, that's their very nature. They identify with that with that lifestyle, they can't change. And they don't want to change. But they're, they affirm that they cannot change. This is just totally contrary to Scripture. As Paul, who ministered in Corinth, where there was a, probably a good homosexual population, but they, they had compassion on them. They brought the gospel to them, as we should. And some of them got saved. And in a list of sins, including the effeminate and homosexuals who came to faith in Jesus Christ, Paul says of them, and such were some of you. You're not that now. You're not gay now. You're not homosexual now. You're not effeminate now. You've been changed by the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So why do you keep identifying with that lifestyle? You're not that anymore. God has changed you even if the movement today thinks that they cannot be changed. Paul says, you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of our God. You're different now. As he says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things have passed away, new things have come. You can change. And this is the hope we give to the homosexual community. You can change. God can save you, forgive you, cleanse you, and change you. You can be changed. Not by your own power, 
but by the power of Jesus Christ. Butterfield says that when gays come to Christ, they should no longer identify as, as gays. They should identify as blood-bought members of the church of Christ, members of the body of Christ. And even though they may continue to struggle with those homosexual desires, they should continue to repent of them like you and I should continue to repent of the sins and the struggles that we have daily as well. But you no longer identify with what you were. God has changed us. Butterfield says, we are not our sin. We ought never to let it define us. So the church should be open to all sinners. All who want to know God, we should welcome them and minister the gospel of grace to them. But if you're going to take up the name of Jesus Christ, then that's for those who honestly are repenting of their sins and have put their trust completely and totally in Jesus Christ, not only to forgive them, but to change them. So we want to help any sinner, just like our, ourselves when we were lost, we want to help any sinner to find the Lord. But we want to be very careful with how we define who is a Christian and the lifestyle that is appropriate for Christians. Well, in wrapping this up, Peter is saying to his churches that God will judge these false teachers. The false teachers today that are promoting these things and the false teachers of the past and throughout the church age, God will judge. He's done it consistently in the past and there's a day of judgment to come in the future. Peter looks to these past judgments of evil men and establishes the certainty of God's righteous judgment in the future on all false teachers uh, within the church. If the Old Testament sinners didn't escape God's judgment, if the false teachers will not escape God's judgment, then neither will we. If we have not repented of our sins and put our faith and trust in Christ alone, we will not escape either. And so Peter is using this to try to build up the church, to trust God's sovereignty, His control, His timing, for there is a day of judgment yet to come. This in and of itself is a message that the church has uh, fallen away from. Sadly, within the evangelical church today, we have been inoculated with a sentimental view of God's divine universal love that eclipses the whole idea of God's justice and judgment and wrath. You don't hear about it anymore today. This is a problem with evangelicalism. God is a God of love, period. We rejoice that God is a God of love, but He's more than just a God of love. He's a God who, who is angry. He's a God who is righteous and holy. He's a God of justice. He's a God of wrath. And if you deny that in your God, then you're not worshiping the God of the Bible. So this doctrine is essential for the church. Jesus taught more about hell than He taught about heaven.
He taught more about hell than anyone else in Scripture. Jesus, our Lord, our Savior, emphasized this doctrine. And we should emphasize it as well. We should not sweep it under the rug. We should not be ashamed of it. it it's incredibly sobering because that's what we all deserve. But for the mercy of God through Jesus Christ are we forgiven and saved out of it. But in closing, there's, there's two consequences of denying God's judgment today that I, I get from Peter's passage here. The first one is if you deny God's judgment, you devalue Christ. Because Christ came to die on the cross to bear the wrath of God, in a sense to bear the suffering of hell that we deserve to suffer in hell. And if you deny hell and if you under, uh, undervalue the wrath of God, then you undervalue the very glory and the work of Jesus Christ. And that's why we should not let it be devalued. That's why we need to affirm it. Praise God again that God is a God of love. But you will not understand the depth of God's love if you do not understand the depth of His suffering and enduring the wrath of God for us. It's understanding the wrath of God that just makes the love of God and the love of Christ on the cross so beautiful and precious to us when we realize what we deserve as sinners. So if you devalue the wrath of God, you devalue Christ. And finally, if you devalue the wrath of God, the judgment of God, you also devalue the joy that we should have in our Savior and in our salvation. I love the words of Psalm 103. Look at the joy. I mean, the joy is just gushing out of David when he writes, Bless the Lord, O my soul, all that is within me. Bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul. I mean, you just feel the joy that he's experiencing. He is blessing God. He's thanking God. O my soul, bless the Lord. He says, and forget none of His benefits. And what's the very first benefit that he mentions? Who pardons all of our iniquities. Praise God. Rejoice in God. Give thanks to God because of all of His blessings. But the first is my sins that deserve the wrath of God have been forgiven. And when you deny the wrath of God, you will undercut the depth of the joy that we should have in what Jesus accomplished for us on the cross. In verse 10, the author goes on to say, He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. He hasn't cast us into hell where we belong. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is the loving kindness towards those who fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has He removed our transgressions from us. See, that's the joy of our salvation. That's the joy of the Lord. Because Jesus came and bore God's wrath and judgment and curse that I deserve to endure in hell forever and ever. Jesus took that for me. And we should have a deeper joy 
the deepest joy in what God has done for us. So regardless of the sinful lifestyle that we've been saved out of, whether you've been saved out of the homosexual lifestyle, or maybe just a lifestyle of immorality, maybe a lifestyle of worldliness or addictions to whatever, our joy is that we have not received what we deserve. We deserve the judgment of God. But we are saved from God by God through the blood, the redeeming blood of Jesus Christ. We are saved from God's wrath, from God's judgment by God the Son and His redeeming blood on Calvary so that our joy can be in God and all that He has done to save us from His judgment that we deserve. Praise God. It's, it's a doctrine that defies our ability to comprehend. But it's a source not only of the glory of Christ, but the depth of the joy that we should have as believers who've been saved by Christ. So may the Lord preserve His truth and bless His church through it. Let's close in prayer. Father, we do thank You, Lord, for just the opportunity to deal with a very difficult passage. It makes us shake in our boots at times, Lord, just to think of how holy and awesome and righteous and perfect You are in all of Your attributes. But though, Lord, we live in a sinful world, You have, by Your mercy and grace, saved us out of that. And You've given us the great charge to go out and make disciples of all the nations, to preach the Gospel of Jesus Christ, that God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believeth in Him might not perish, but have everlasting life. O oh Lord, fill us with the joy of our salvation. Help us to have the motivation to take this precious gospel to those who need to hear it, regardless of the sinful lifestyle that they are in. So build your church, Lord, and build it through us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.